Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked to the very end, the last seven lines of Canto 5, which have caused so much commentary. I don't actually know that they've caused the most commentary of anything in comedy, but I can tell you these seven lines have just about undone commentators for 700 years. To get to these seven lines at the end of Canto Five, what I'd like to do is go back and start through the three speeches and read them all for you. If you remember, we're on a first minor ledge of Mount Purgatory with Virgil and Dante. We have seen some very lazy souls in the shade of a boulder, including Balacqua. Then we saw a frenzied rush of souls who came up to Dante and spoke in one voice, rather ignoring Virgil. And then three of them step out and differentiate themselves. What I'd like to do is go back all the way to line 64 and and read out to the end of the canto at line 136, catching these seven lines at the end. I want you to sit back and listen to this because I want you to hear how these final seven lines land before we pick them apart in our traditional way as we walk with Dante. One of them began, Each of us trusts in your good offices without swearing any oaths, unless the sheer lack of ability hinders your will. Therefore, I, who speak alone before the others, beg you that if you ever see again that countryside that lies between Romagna and King Charles's realm, do me the favor of asking those in Fano to pray for me, if they love me well, so that I might be able to purge my heinous crimes." That's where I came from, but the deep gashes out of which I hemorrhaged to death were given to me in the homelands of the Antinori, where I believed I was the safest. The man from Este made it happen. He had more anger toward me than he had a right to have. If I'd only then have fled toward La Mira when I was overtaken at Oriago, I would still be back there where people breathe on their own. Instead, I ran into the swamp where the brush and the mud so tangled me up that I fell. At that spot, my veins created a lake on the ground. Then another one said, hey, so that your desire to haul yourself up to the heights of this mountain may be fulfilled, help mine because of beneficent pity. I'm from Montefeltro. I'm Buonconte. Neither Giovanna nor anyone else gives a hoot about me. That's why I go among these with my forehead bent low. And I to him, what force or accident pushed you so far away from Campaldino so that your grave was never discovered? Oh, he replied, a stream called the Archiano crosses the foot of the Casentino. That stream is born in the Apennines above the Hermitage. Just at the spot where its demarcation becomes meaningless, I arrived with a gash in my throat. I was fleeing on foot, but bleeding out across the plain. That's where I lost my sight and my words. I met my end on Mary's name. And that's where I fell. All that remained of me was my flesh. I'll tell the truth, and you repeat it among the living. The angel of God gathered me up, yet one from hell cried out, Hey, you from heaven, how come you rob me? You cart off the eternal part of this guy because of one little teardrop he's yanked away from me. But I'll do with the rest of him as I see fit. 
You certainly know how damp vapors condense into water as they rise, up to where the cold can gather them together. That evil will combined with its intellect to search for how to do more evil. It moved the mists and winds by means of its natural powers, so that when the day was over, he dispersed a fog into that valley that goes from Pratomagno up to the mountain chain. A fog so dense that the pregnant air was morphed into water. The rain fell and the ditches got all of it that the ground couldn't absorb. They joined forces into rushing torrents that sluiced down into the valley with such force that nothing could hold them back. My frozen body was found right at the mouth of the rushing Archiano, which swept it along into the Arno pulling the cross off my chest that I'd made with my arms when pain had conquered me. The river rolled me along its bank and its bottom, then covered and buried me in its debris. Hey, when you will be finally returned to the world and rested from your long path followed a third spirit on the second, remember me. I am La Pia. Siena made me Marema unmade me, as is well known to him who was married to me after he gave me the ring with his family's stone in it. I wanted to do that long reading so you could hear how strange these last seven lines are, spoken by a woman, the first woman we have seen in a very long time. We saw Titus scraping human excrement off herself among the flatterers, and then we saw Francesca way up in Inferno. We haven't seen a woman in a very long time or heard one speak, and yet here she is, La Pia. Son La Pia. I am La Pia. We want to talk about who this is. It has caused so much disruption in commentary. It's unbelievable. So let me just talk through a bit who Pia is. Then I want to talk through the passage itself and point out some of the problems in the passage itself. Before we turn to some larger questions about Mary and about the language of Purgatorio and Inferno. First of all, let's start off with who this is. Son la pia. I am la pia. Most commentators and translators take that la pia to be rather endearing, to be intimate. It doesn't really work in English, and there's no real translation for it. I might be able to get away with I am your pia. It doesn't have quite the same ring as son la pia, but it still has this connotation of intimacy of closeness. Her, her name is Pia, but who is this Pia? Well, let me just tell you that this is befuddled commentary for hundreds of years. Most commentators now try to identify her as Pia de Tolomei, maybe, or Pia de Panokieski. Uh, it's hard to know. She doesn't give enough information to know who she is. For a long time, many commentators thought this was the wife of Baldo de Talomei, uh, and he killed his wife maybe later on, but it's now been firmly proven that can't be the truth because his wife was alive in 1318, long after Pia appears here. 
here in Purgatorio, allegedly in the year 1300. In the end, this Pia is unknowable. If she is Pia de Panokieski, then he, that dastardly fellow, defenestrated her, threw her out the window of a house to kill her because he was in love with another woman. If she is Pia de Ptolemy, and that's not necessarily the wife of Baldo, but of another Manello, then there may be ways he killed her, but there's not a lot of trail here. And many, many commentators have tried to follow the trail. In order to give her an officially firm name, you have to trust the early commentators, and I wouldn't trust them. There's too much made up about this figure, and I prefer to look at this structurally. Think about it this way. The first guy who steps out doesn't name himself. Jacopo del Casero, we know because of details of his story. And so we could pretty firmly secure him by historical references in that story. But he doesn't name himself. The second guy that steps out of this frenzy group names himself Juan Conte da Montefeltro. He just comes right out and tells us who he is and tells that big, long, dramatic story about the demonic, angelic fight over his body. And then this figure steps out and gives us a very ambiguous name, which has the whiff of intimacy about it. I love that progression. Unnamed but determinable, named and determinable, named and indeterminable. I love that that works structurally, and maybe Dante intended this. Now, it's mostly thought that Dante had real people in mind when he created the characters of comedy. (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm thinking about a character at the top of Purgatorio, Matilda, who apparently is created out of whole cloth. But okay, mostly Dante is alleged to have had real people in mind throughout comedy. Mohammed, Brunetto Latini, Francesca. Chaco's a little difficult. If you remember, it was hard to pin that glutton down. But okay, in most cases, the assumption is Dante knows this person. And maybe Dante did know a woman named Pia who died a violent death. But nonetheless, I love that pattern. Not named. Named but determinable, named and determinable, named and indeterminate, or not fully knowable. That is a beautiful progression. It follows out with what I tried to show you by reading the three voices. That is, this canto gets louder and louder. The frenzied souls run up. Well, it starts out with the lazy souls pointing at Dante suddenly in action. Then the frenzied souls run up and they say, oh, we all died of violent deaths and they step forward and the deaths are more and more violent. I mean, Jacopo's death is terrible. Veins made a lake on the ground. Buonconte's death is even more dramatic crazy angels and demons fighting over his body, rivers sluicing it down, buried under the debris. And then we feel this unbelievable, to use a musical term, diminuendo, this unbelievable quiet, this almost stillness after all this frenzy. I mean, it was getting louder and louder and more and more dramatic. And then we get these seven lines. Let me just read them to you on their own. Hey, When you will finally be returned to the world and rested from your long path, followed a third spirit on the second, remember me. I am La Pia, 
Sienna made me, Marema unmade me, as is well known to him who was married to me, after he gave me the ring with his family's stone in it. It's so elliptical. We want to talk about that in a minute. It's so beautifully poetic. We want to talk about that in a minute. But for the moment, let's just stop and work our way through those seven lines and talk about some of the problems in them. I'm going to just start again and read it through. Hey, when you will finally be returned to the world, and she does use mondo, world, and I find this very interesting. You know, several times if you've been listening to this podcast, I've stumbled and I've said something about, oh, returning to the world, and then I have to stop myself and say, well, no, wait, purgatory is on the globe. It is part of this world, this terrestrial environment. It's just on the opposite side from the land of the living of the globe. Well, you'll notice here that Pia makes the same mistake, and I assume Dante makes the same mistake that I've been making. I assume we're not supposed to read anything about Pia out of this. This is Dante the poet, in my interpretation, slipping and forgetting that Purgatorio, this place that is clearly um, with the redeemed part of the afterlife, is still on the terrestrial globe itself. And I love the slip in Pia that, you know, Dante is pretty worked up about all of this. We had some pretty dramatic speeches. And now we get this beautifully poetic speech. I think Dante is really working hard here as a poet, and he slips. And he, as you say, when you get back to the world, you're still on the world, dear. You're just on the other side of it. Okay, that's an interesting slip, but notice what she says. When you will be finally returned to the world and rested from your long path, nobody else has worried about the pilgrim, Dante. Everybody else has rushed up to him and said, wow, have I got a story for you, Manfred Balacqua. Well, he's hardly rushing up, but okay. You know, everybody has just come right out with their stories. And oh, think all the way back to Inferno and Ugolino and Ulysses and Guido de Montefeltro. I mean, they all just are spilling like constant. And Guido de Montefeltro maybe has a little bit of concern for the pilgrim in hell because he says, you know, nobody ever gets out of here, so I might as well tell you my whole story. But that's not really concern. That's just kind of what he thinks is the truth. This is actual concern. She shows some kind of compassion, and she worries that that pilgrim needs rest after this arduous journey. That shows her character instantly in the first two lines of her speech. And then she goes on and says, remember me, I am La Pia. Everyone else has asked for something. Go talk to Giovanna, my wife, Juan Conte says, or my former wife. Go back and talk to Constance, Manfred said. Everybody's all so concerned with getting Dante to do stuff back in the land of the living. Not her. She says, remember me, not pray for me, not give alms for me. Remember me. It's so quiet. Then she comes out with this line, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. Siena made me, Marema unmade me. Two different geographic locations linking her to the her speech, to the incredible Italian geography of the former two speeches. But this time it's so condensed. In other words, I was born in Siena and I died in Marema. So beautifully poetic, as is, she says, well known to 
him who was married to me after he gave me the ring with his family stone in it. The verb she uses there indicates that this may have been a private wedding. In Dante's day, you could be privately married by slipping a ring on a woman's finger without yet going to church and having the priest and doing the whole marriage ceremony. You were considered married. And she may be indicating that there was some kind of clandestine or secret wedding between her and clearly the man who murdered her, since these are all those who died of violent deaths, the man who murdered her after he slipped the ring on her finger with the family stone in it. Notice this idea that there's this gem that's passed down, you know, like like some kind of heirloom that's passed down. And notice how that relates back to Buonconte and saying, I was from Montefeltro. Notice how that is hearkening back to family squabbles, family ties, and yet it's so condensed, so elliptical. We have to keep supposing things. She doesn't say, I died in Marema. We infer that. She doesn't say necessarily that they got married so much as she says, essentially, he beringed me with the family jewels. So there are all these inferences that we have to make from her speech. It's almost as if we are having to see through a fog. And if you just think that we just came off that big bit about fog and rain and mist, and now we get, to put it bluntly, verbal fog. And it does condense into a story, just like those foggy mists from Buonconte's story. It does, this does condense into a story, but we have to kind of put pressure on it. We have to lean against it to figure out what it is she's actually trying to say. And one of the things that she says that's so interesting is something that has plagued the passage so far, and we haven't talked about it, and we might as well talk about it now. She says, Sienna made me, as I said, Marema unmade me. Okay, fair enough. Who's the me? <laughs> if, <laughs> if the souls are up in purgatory, well, down on the other side of the globe in purgatory. See, I'm doing it again. Down on the other side of the globe in purgatory. If the souls have moved on, isn't that who they are? And yet, how can there be a me without a body? This is an interesting problem, and it actually came up in Juan Conte's speech, and I didn't talk about it. When his body is picked up by the Archiano and flows into the Arno and it rolls around under the debris and is covered up, he says, essentially, I was covered up. Who's the I? That's a dead shell. That's a body. I was covered up by the river's debris, or the river's debris covered me up. Who is that me? It's sitting right there in the medieval Florentine. And this is a problem that Dante is moving toward. He hasn't yet seen that this is a problem. He might be starting to see it. He's going to try to solve this problem later, just as he did the corporeality of the soul problem, just as he did start to realize it. And then we had the pilgrim's hands go through or arms go through. Casella. This is another problem. What is a soul without a body? And where is the me? Is the me that body that's at the bottom of the Arno? That's what Buonaconte says. It covered me. Me? 
your body, your shell, me. And here she says, Sienna made me, Marema unmade me. Me? Wait, how can you be unmade? Aren't you standing right here as a soul in front of Dante or floating here or walking here or whatever you're doing? Isn't this you? This is a problem of how the soul and the body are integrated and where is the true person. It is sitting like a little bubbling, (laughs) boiling pot underneath these passages, and it's going to come to a much bigger boil over the course of Purgatorio, and Dante's going to eventually have to solve this. But I just want to point it out here for you at this point before we turn on and look at some difficult moments in this passage. First of all, let's say that it is extremely interesting that Pia steps forward and gives this beautifully poetic speech after the first time in comedy where we have the legitimate veneration of Mary. In Buonconte's speech, he dies, he says, with Mary's name on his lips. This is the first time in comedy we actually have a veneration of the Virgin. We may or may not have seen the Virgin way back in Inferno, Canto 2, when Virgil tells his story about how he was commissioned to come save Dante. There is this question of who the Lady on High is, and most commentators now believe that's the Virgin Mary. But it's not directly stated in the text, and we have inferred it from the text. The first true moment of the veneration of Mary is in Buonconte da Montefeltro's lips here in Canto Five of Purgatorio. And after that, Pia steps forward to give these incredibly enigmatic lines. That is a poetic decision. He can't have just dropped Mary's name willy-nilly into the text. After all, Buonconte could have ended with any word on his mouth. Save me, um, you know, hallelujah for the cross, just hallelujah, Jesus. He could have ended with any word. He ended with Mary's name, and then we have this female figure step forward. That must indicate something poetically inside the text. And what we get here is this incredibly poignant speech. But let's talk about this for just a minute, this poignant speech that she gives. There are two ways to look at this, and I'm not going to argue for one or the other. Just let me set these out for you. You you, you could probably be able to tell what I prefer, but still, this is a poignant speech given by Pia, just seven little lines. One of the lines is a dialogue marker, so she really only speaks six lines. It's interesting that it comes after all the Sturm und Drang of the speeches of Jacopo and Buonconte. Does this indicate something about women? Is Dante, because we've seen so few of them, is Dante making a comment about women? And that while men's giant, heroic, bleed-out deaths are so warlike and battle-like, there is this other problem of domestic violence. Women are killed by their husbands. And so we have this very quiet speech that 
is almost <laughs> louder than the war speeches that just preceded it. It's certainly invoked more commentary than the war speeches that preceded it. Is that a comment on the privacy of women, that women are killed in homes, in private spaces, that they are often the subject of domestic violence rather than political or civil violence? Not that women don't die in wars. Of course they do. And not that women aren't beheaded and burned. Of course, they were in the Middle Ages. But nonetheless, is that part of what's going on here? These these giant battle speeches followed by this very quiet voice that seems to indicate that she was killed by her own husband. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is you're not going to maybe like this because most people like the first way, but let's just do it and let it sit. Another way to do it is to say, Oh, gosh. Women don't have much to say. The boys can bang on forever about God and their deaths and their souls. And when it comes to women, they really don't have a lot to add to the story. Now, this sounds terrible. It sounds deeply misogynistic. But we are building toward a passage of incredible misogyny ahead of us. And misogyny is the tenor of the times. It's the blood in the water of the Middle Ages. So is there a way in which Dante limits the speech of Pia in order to say, well, she's a woman. She only gets so many words. That is an appropriate, although I don't think the best reading of this speech. And the reason I don't think it's the best reading, but it's possible. The reason is because, A, we are, as I said, heading toward a moment of grand misogyny ahead of us. And we've been talking about this and laying the stones for this with Constance and Giovanna and all this stuff. Is this, in fact, a contrast to Giovanna? And that's really the only reason she's here, that Quante's wife, Giovanna, has forgotten about him, and here's little old Pia, and she's just meek and mild like a woman is supposed to be. Uh, I know. Please don't think I necessarily think this, and please don't think that I think that this is right, but it is one of the ways you can see the passage in a medieval context, and the reason I don't think it quite lands is because of that line, Siena made me, Marema unmade me. That line is so poetic that we want to talk about it and tease it out just a little bit. The line in the Florentine is actually Siena mi fe disfecemi marema. And fe made and disfecemi unmade me are right against each other in the line. Siena mi fe disfecemi marema. It is so compact. So amazing. Those verbs balance over each other. And the names of the two Italian towns, regions, are sitting on either side of the sentence. Siena, Marema, like the the balance weights in the pans with the verbs in the middle as kind of the indicator, the tip of the balance itself. This speech, and this is kind of what I want to push for a minute, is incredibly poetic and it is incredibly elliptical. It is incredibly inferential. We have to assume that she was killed in Marema. We have to assume that she was born in Siena. Those are assumptions. That's not what the line says. We're being forced behind the line to make assumptions. This is elliptical. 
elliptical, inferential speech that is tough to handle. You know what it reminds me of? <laughs> it reminds me of Pierre de la Vigne back in the 13th canto of Inferno. In giusto feci me contra me giusto. And we talked about this endlessly. Such an elliptical line. In giusto feci me contra me giusto. So weirdly elliptical and we have to kind of ferret out his suicide from it. Remember that I told you that, in fact, one of the problems in Purgatorio is the changing notion of language and that language has to become clearer in order to carry theological truths. I think that here in Pia's speech, we have a little whiff of those old infernal poetics. Let me just push this just a minute. You don't have to buy this, but let me push it. In Inferno, when characters speak, like Ugolino, they speak in ways that occlude the point. So whether he ate his children or not is still a matter of debate. When Francesca speaks, we get that amor, 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 love made me do this, love made me, love told me to. We get this just unbelievable elliptical, not elliptical speech without saying, oh, I committed adultery and uh, I got killed by my husband because basically I slept with his brother. We get this incredibly beautiful speech that covers up the problem. The same with Brunetto Latini and many others. They speak a language that occludes their culpability, that hides their guilt. Ulysses, think of him, that hides his guilt behind his stirring pronouncements of the human spirit. Well, I think that Siena mi is just a little whiff of that infernal poetics. And, you know, I've told you, the two speeches that come from this are rather hellish, bleeding out on the ground. We actually hear a demon talk in Purgatorio, and then we get a little node of the infernal, elliptical, inferential poetics, the parts of Inferno that we loved so much. Purgatorio has to clarify the language, but the poet Dante is caught. He's caught, in my reading of Purgatorio, on the tension between wanting that poetic, infernal, elliptical, inferential, how many times am I going to say this, language, while needing a clearer language to explain theological truths. There is one other way that you can look at this, and let me just mess up my own interpretation here of infernal nodes in Purgatorio and say that there are critics who claim that one of the things that happens in these three speeches, Jacopo, Buonconte, and then Pia, is that they become increasingly spiritual, increasingly otherworldly, that we have Jacopo, who has a very terrestrial death bleeding out on the ground. We have Buonconte, who has a death that is caught between heaven and hell with angels and demons struggling over him. And then we move to Pia and this speech that is almost 
effervescent, ethereal, spiritual, transparent, translucent. And so many commentators say that what we're doing here is we're moving away from terrestrial deaths to more and more spiritualized existence. And that might be a way to see it and a fine reading of it. I tend to read it as the struggle to get clear theology into a poetic language that Dante the Poet has built over Inferno, and he wants to keep intact while becoming as clear as any scholastic philosopher, letting language clarify and letting its metaphors simplify from those grandiose metaphors in Inferno that took up so much space. I think Pia is one of the little nodes of infernal poetry, forcing us to see an occluded truth and forcing us to compress her story out of the words she gives us as fog and mists condense to rain. And in fact, torrents of rain as the torrents of criticism that have arisen because of these very strange final seven lines of Canto Five. A lot to say. I really let La Pia have everything and gave away my game multiple times with her. I find these seven lines to be absolutely overwhelming, but we must move on and keep walking. Up next, we are moving to a large section of Purgatorio. We're going to do the three cantos that lead up to the gate of Purgatorio 6, 7, and 8. To get there, you have to subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things that I beg you to do all the time. Please do. It so much helps in the analytics. I really appreciate connecting with you on my website, markscarborough.com, or on Instagram. It's easy to find me there. Or on Facebook. There's even a Walking with Dante group on Facebook. I can connect with you in any of those places. And I look forward to walking on and figuring out how the poet is going to clarify language while maintaining his poetics across the universe. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon.